Well, it's good to see all of you. Happy New Year. What a joy to be able to start our year together in worship as a church family. If you're a guest with us today, we've been walking through the book of Colossians in a series over the course of the fall, and we've taken a break from it for a couple of weeks, but we're launching back in today. So if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to take it and open to the book of Colossians, and we're going to be in chapter 3 today. If you don't have a Bible with you, we'll have the scriptures on the screen here in a few moments. But really encourage you to, to, if you don't own a Bible, to get a Bible, get a paper Bible, bring it with you to church. You're going to need it here at Moberly because uh, that's what we do each and every week uh, as well as uh, fellowshipping and praying together and having small groups uh, together. When we gather and worship, we sing to Jesus, but we also take time to open up the word of Jesus and uh, hear about his will for our lives. And so uh, that's what we're going to do together this morning. Colossians chapter 3. Have you ever made a discovery uh, that just changed everything for you? I, I learned the other day that the, uh, the Pacific Train Depot in Marshall was the first building in Texas with electricity. Isn't that amazing? The first building in Texas with electricity right here in East Texas. And the first ever electric light bulb ever used in Texas was used in Marshall, Texas. Isn't that cool? Did that blow your mind? That just blew my mind when I read about that. Pretty interesting. A a light bulb really does change everything, doesn't it? It allows you to stay up later than normal. It allows you to work maybe longer than you probably should work. It allows you to see things that you couldn't see before, particularly brightens up the darkness. It, It changes everything. Well, to a a much greater degree, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a discovery that changes everything for us. Like light bursting into darkness, when you really see the good news of Jesus, of who he is and what he's done for us, it changes everything about our life. When you understand what God has done for you in Christ, how he has forgiven you, how he's made you new, how he's reconciled you to God, how he's given you the gift of his Holy Spirit, how he exercises loving rule in your life. It it really reshapes everything about your life. It it reshapes my inner life. It it reshapes my relationship with other people. It it reshapes my marriage. It reshapes my parenting. It, It reshapes my work. It reshapes the way that I I view the world. The gospel changes everything about my life. And that's what the book of Colossians is all about. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul has proclaimed the good news of Jesus. He's explained that Jesus is Lord of all creation, that he rules over the entire universe. And, And even though he is the cosmic Lord of creation, he can also be the personal Lord of my life, that he can reconcile me to God. And Colossians chapter 1 is just a display of the beauty of the discovery of the gospel. And then Colossians 2, 3, and 4, the last three chapters of the book, is just explaining how that discovery of the gospel makes a, a real and practical difference to every area of our life. So that's what Paul has been talking about for the last couple of chapters, is just how the gospel reshapes us in every aspect. I want us to focus our attention this morning, Colossians chapter 3, verses 15 through 17, because Paul's going to talk about when you really understand the gospel, when the gospel is front and center in your life, how that begins to 
shape some new priorities in your life. And so we're going to see four gospel-centered priorities that ought to be true in our lives when we really understand uh, the gospel. And if you make New Year's resolutions, I know not everybody is really into that, but those of you who are, then this text would be a great outline for you this year. Let's look together at at Colossians chapter 3, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 15. Paul says, "And, and let the peace of Christ, notice that phrase, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. And let the word of Christ, notice that, the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. I want to spend a few moments with you this morning talking about four gospel-shaped priorities. When you discover how great Jesus is, there ought to be four priorities in your life. Here's the first one. Paul tells us in verse 15 that when the gospel is central, we prioritize the peace of Christ. You notice that in verse 15? He says, let the peace of Christ, to which you were called in one body, let the peace of Christ rule your hearts. Now, what is the peace of Christ that Paul is talking about there? Well, I think he's meaning it in two different senses there. First of all, we know from the gospel that through Christ, we can have peace with God. Amen? That those of us who are born alienated from God, born hostile to God, that through the work of Jesus, we can have peace with God. And in fact, Paul has already talked about that in Colossians chapter 1. In fact, stick your finger in chapter 3, flip back a couple of chapters to Colossians chapter 1, and I want to remind you of what he said about the gospel here. Colossians chapter 1 and verses 19 through 22, Paul says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ... And through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making what? By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead so that he could make peace between sinful man and holy God. You say, what does it mean to make peace through the cross? Well, look at verses 21 and 22. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death in order to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. So here Paul is giving us the crux of the good news that those of us who were far from God through Jesus can be brought near to God. That that those of us who without Christ were like foreigners through Christ can be made family. That those of us before we knew Jesus were alienated from God through Christ can be adopted into God's family. That is the good news of what Jesus has done for us, that we can have peace with God, that we can have an intimate knowledge of who God is. And more than that, we can actually have a friendship with God that results in those of us who were enemies with him now being 
uh, now being his children, his sons and daughters. And all of that is possible because Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. He took away all of our sin, paid for our rebellion so that we can be reconciled to God. That's the good news of the gospel. And this brings peace, doesn't it? I, I remember as a young man, I did not have peace with God. Um, I, I was uh, an angry young man. Anger just marked my life and also fear. I was particularly afraid of death. I remember it being age 10, 11, 12. I used to be really concerned with what happens after you die. And so I'd go to bed at night. I remember, you know, this is what 11-year-olds think about when they lay their head on the pillow, like what happens if I die in the middle of the night? And I would I would have a hard time going to sleep because I was afraid that I might die in the middle of the night. And the thought of eternity, which for a believer in Christ means like everlasting joy and delight in God's presence. For, For me, I was an unbeliever. The thought of eternity was a terrifying thought of like things just going on endlessly. And I had no peace with God, terrified of death. Um, You know, Hebrews chapter 2 talks about being uh, enslaved to the fear of death. And that really described my life. Until July 27th, 1999, when I heard the gospel in in a way, listen, I I knew the facts of the gospel. I'd heard it a thousand times in my life, but it became real in my life as a 12-year-old. And I thought about the fact that not only can Jesus deliver me from my sin, which I needed that, but he also can del- deliver, deliver me from death because the good news of Jesus is not just that Jesus died on a cross. If you've only talked about that, you've only talked about half of the good news. He did die on the cross for my sins, but he also rose from the dead. And the Bible tells us he rose from the dead in order to put death to death and to deliver us from death. And this, this thought was liberating for me. The idea that I could be delivered both from my sin, but also delivered from death. And so I turned from my sin. I said, I don't want to live with me at the center of my life anymore. I want Jesus to be king. And I put my trust in Jesus. And in that moment, instantaneously, the miraculous happened. A a peace that I can't explain flooded my soul. And those of you, you who know Jesus as Savior, you know what I'm talking about. If you're, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, it may sound unbelievable. But I'm just telling you that the moment that I decided to trust my life to Jesus, a peace came. And certainly that is what Paul is meaning here. Uh, the peace of Christ. The peace that comes with knowing that you have a relationship with God. If you are here today and you've never made the decision to turn in faith to Jesus. Maybe you'd say, I I don't have any peace. I would encourage you to turn to Christ, find the peace of Christ. But there's another sense in which Paul, I think, means this peace. uh, When he says we, we prioritize the peace of Christ, to let the peace of Christ rule in our midst. And that is that not only through Christ that we can have peace with God, but the Bible also tells us that through Christ, you can have peace with others. We know that reconciliation, the work of Jesus on the cross to reconcile us is something that happens vertically. We are reconciled to God, but it is also something that happens horizontally, that when you come to know Jesus, you are reconciled with with people. 
That in other words, the gospel not only reconciles sinful man with holy God, but the gospel also reconciles people to people. And I think actually that that is what Paul has been talking about in the context here of verses 11 through 14. You remember that Paul that talks about in verse 11, for instance, that in Christ, there's no longer Greek or Jew. There's no longer circumcision or uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. In other words, Paul is saying, when you come to know Jesus, All of these things that tend to set us apart from one another, all the things that tend to to be like boundary markers that make us different from the people around us, right? Jew, Gentile, slave, uh, free. We might say today, Texan and Oki, right? We have all kinds of things that make us different from one another, right? Some of us do this. Thank you. One. One friend. Two friends. Three friends. Okay, now you're admitting it. All right, you were scared at first. We do this, some of us. Others of us do. There it is. Yep. Without fail. We, we tend to set up all kinds of things that make us different from one another. But... Paul says, once you come to know Jesus, there is one thing that you have in common now that is more important than any of the other things that make you different. Have you ever thought about the church that way? Like if you look around this room, this is a group of people that probably doesn't belong in the same room with each other under ordinary circumstances. And we are all very different people. We have different backgrounds. Some of us come from different cultures. Some of us are in different socioeconomic uh, positions. Some of us speak different languages. And under ordinary circumstances, it makes no sense at all for all of us to be in the same room together. Except we all love Jesus. And our common love for Jesus is more important than the ways that we tend to separate uh, each other from one another, right? And so Paul is saying that in Christ, these, these divisions of Jew, Gentile, slave, and free, all of those things pale in comparison to our unity that we have in Christ. And then he says in verses 12, 13, and 14, he talks about the importance of, of loving one another and bearing with one another and forgiving one another. And then he tells us in verse 15, let the peace of Christ to which you were called in one body rule in your heart. So I think actually what Paul is saying is that one of our priorities, if we really understand the gospel, is peace with each other. That we really prioritize being a unified family. That even though, yes, we might root for the Sooners or root for the Longhorns or root for the Aggies, (laughs) even though some of you might like country music and some of you like old school classic rock music, can I get a witness? Uh, Some of you, maybe you come to the eight o'clock service or the 9.30 service, the 11 o'clock service, or maybe you speak a different language. It doesn't matter what the differences are that you really value and treasure the unity that we have in Christ, that we are one family in Jesus and our commonality in Jesus is more important than the things that make us different. You know, if you use a salad dressing at lunch, you go to lunch, get a salad, you use a salad dressing, a lot of salad dressings will have oil and water. And oil and water, if you, if you mix up that salad dressing, those the oil and water will mix together for a minute. But then eventually it will separate into oil and water, right? Because these are two very different things. But mayonnaise, 
It's different. <laughs> Mayonnaise also has oil and water, but it doesn't separate into layers because it has, word of the week, an emulsifier. Now, kids, if you want to impress your grandparents this week, talk about an emulsifier. You, you say, what's an emulsifier? Well, an emulsifier is a third ingredient that brings two very different ingredients together. So an emulsifier, in case you're curious, if you want one more reason not to use mayonnaise, um, <laughs> the emulsifier in mayonnaise is usually egg yolk and it brings together the oil and the water, right? That's what an emulsifier is. It takes two things that are very different and brings them together. And in that sense, folks, the cross is an emulsifier. The cross is, is where people who are normally very different, very far from one another, are brought together in unity in Christ, right? The cross is where enemies become friends, where people who are very different from one another can be unified together. And so Paul says, when the gospel is central, you will prioritize the peace of Christ, the peace that God, that Christ brings with God and the peace that Christ brings with other believers, all right? Now, here's a second priority, a gospel-centered priority that Paul gives us. And we see it in verse 16. Paul says, not only will you prioritize the peace of Christ, but then he says in verse 16, you also prioritize the word of Christ. Do you notice what he says in verse 16? Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. That, that means let the word of Christ take up residence in you. He uses the plural you. If, you. if we were doing like the Texan standard translation here, we would say, let the word of Christ take up residence in y'all. Okay? Y'all together, let the word dwell in your midst. In other words, he, he's, he's saying here that when you really understand the gospel, that you're going to have a priority, not just that you will let the peace of Christ rule, but the word of Christ dwell. Not just that you will value the peace of Christ, but that you will treasure the word of Christ. He, he says, when you really understand the beauty of the gospel, you will be a church where the word of Christ is central. And I pray that that would be true of our church, that this would be a place where we treasure the word of Christ, where we would say, we want, we want the word of God to take up residence and live among us. That, that's why we make such a big deal of the Bible. It's one of our key values, biblical truth. We believe scripture is central. This is what Paul is telling us, that if you really understand the gospel, you will treasure the word of Christ. You'll allow it to take up residence and have a home in you. Now, how do we do that? Well, Paul tells us how, actually, here. He, he tells us three ways to let the word of Christ take up residence in our midst. He says, by teaching in all wisdom, by admonishing one another, and then by singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Notice that in verse 16, all three of those things. First of all, Paul says, we teach. We let the word of Christ dwell in us by teaching scripture. Listen, the, the Bible is, is central at Moberly. It is central to our worship. It's central to connect groups. 
It's what we are emphasizing right now with our daily formation challenge. We've had nearly 650 people in our church commit to a daily time in Scripture and in prayer. You say, why does that matter? Well, because we believe that God's Word is what has, uh, carries the greatest weight. Okay, so that's why we, for instance, take time in the middle of a worship service to open up the Bible and pay attention to it. Okay, it's, you're here not because you want to hear just great music, although we have great music. You're here not just because you want to hear a pastor give his opinions about stuff. Listen, I, can you believe I am an opinionated person? <laughs> I have opinions about all kinds of things. But you know what you don't need? My opinions about stuff. It's not going to help you. You need God's word. You need the word of Christ, right? This is like food for our soul. And so we teach it. We walk through books of the Bible on Sunday mornings together. Uh, it's why I don't do, you know, maybe uh, catchy, cute sermon series. It's like, no, we're just going to pick Colossians and walk through it until we're done. And then we'll go to the Old Testament. We'll pick a book in the Old Testament. We'll walk through it till we're done. We'll come back to the New Testament. We'll go back and forth until Jesus comes back, right? Because we want the Word of Christ to dwell among us. So we, we teach it. That's why we teach it in our connect groups, right? We value the Word of God. So if you want the Word of Christ to take up residence in you, then let me encourage you to value this time. Value the preaching of God's word. Value when you go to your connect group and you open up a Bible and you talk about it. Value that time. Value your time daily in the word. I encourage you, get a real paper Bible. Mark it up. Live in this book. Let it, this book live in you. Amen? So we teach. Number two, we, we, we warn. How do you let the word of Christ dwell in you? Well, Paul says, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. Now, admonish is a word we don't use every day. It just means to give caution or to warn. Uh, it has the sense of correction. And that's part of what Scripture will do. There's a corrective aspect to Scripture. There's a sense in which the Bible not only positively instructs us, but sometimes has to correct us and call us back home, right? If you have young kids and you ever take a walk, uh, around the neighborhood with your young kids, you're having to constantly get them back on the path. You know what I'm saying? Correct some things. Like kids, get off the neighbor's tree. Kids, get out of the neighbor's bush. Kids, get off the neighbor's lawn. Kids, climb off the neighbor's dog. You know, come back. That's, that's the corrective nature of Scripture. It's calling us back. And 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 says this very thing about the Bible. It says, all Scripture is inspired by God. That means that every word of Scripture is breathed by God. It has God as its source. And it is profitable. It's valuable to your life. Why? Well, for teaching and for rebuking, for correcting and for training in righteousness. Notice the, the parallelism there, right? Correcting and rebuking, uh, teaching and instructing. And, and that's what the Bible does. And I want you to know that's... that's that's a, um, a gift of God's grace. No one likes to be corrected. Can I get a witness? It's no fun to be corrected. Nobody likes that. It's not an enjoyable experience. But I want you to, to actually reframe the way you view that as a gift of God's grace. 
um, that shapes us into greater Christ-likeness. Sometimes I need correcting. Sometimes I need God's Word to get me back on the path, to, to rebuke something, to admonish something, to correct something. And it's actually an act of God's love for me that the Bible is sometimes going to be hard for me to hear. Sometimes people will come up to me and say, Pastor, you know, I really didn't like that thing that you talked about in your sermon. And normally I'll just say, great. (laughs) Then maybe God's like trying to speak to you or something, you know, or maybe you walk out of connector. I really didn't like that verse. Well, good. Maybe because God's going to teach you something through it, right? I would actually be suspicious if the Bible always agreed with me all the time, because then I would just wonder, is this a man-made book? If it's a God-inspired book, then I would expect it actually to rub me the wrong way sometimes. I would expect it to challenge me and confront me and correct me. And, and that's a good thing. It's an act of God's grace. Uh, Augustine once said that if you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel you believe, but yourself. Just let that one sit. All right, so we teach, we warn. How else do we let the word of Christ dwell in us? Well, Paul takes a little unusual turn here. We sing, we sing. I want to just talk with you for a few moments about the importance of singing. Uh, Look what Paul says. He says, let the word of Christ richly dwell in you, teaching and admonishing one another. How do we do that exactly? Through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Now, I just want to tell you that one of the ways that we demonstrate our value for the word of Christ is by singing about Christ and to Christ at the top of our lungs. Amen? Three of you. All right. One of the ways that you show that you really love The word of Christ is that you are willing to sing loud. Paul says, if you want to let the word of Christ dwell in you in a rich way, then you sing with gratefulness in your hearts to God. He doesn't say sing with talent in your voice. He says sing with gratitude in your heart. Grateful hearts sing to a great God. If your heart is full of love for God, it ought to express itself In your singing, you say, Pastor, I'm not a good singer. That's okay. You don't have to be a good singer. The Bible says, make a joyful noise to the Lord. That means if you can't sing well, sing loud. Everybody can sing loud even if you can't sing well. And some of you are like, my neighbor over here does sing loud and not well. But here's the key part of that, singing with a joyful, a joyful noise. Listen, joyful hearts sing. I remember the first time I asked Amy out on a date. And she said, yes. I busted through my apartment door, woke my roommate up in the middle of the night and was singing. She said, yes. (laughs) Top of my lungs. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. She said, yes. Joyful hearts sing. And here's the deal, guys. We have seen you singing to country music in your truck at the top of your lungs on your way home from work. We know you sing. If you love Jesus, sing to Jesus. Sing like you mean it. I saw something on Facebook this week. I thought it was so good. It said one of the markers of a health of the church 
noisy babies and singing men. And I love that. Noisy babies. You know, when you hear a child make a noise in a worship service, you ought to say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for the next generation. Thank you, Lord, for life in our church. Thank you, Lord, for a faithful young family that is in the trenches and being faithful to come and worship. And, and that's, a, that's a, not an easy thing. Can I get a witness when you got little ones to get them in worship? And, but when you hear that noisy baby, you ought to say, thank you, God, for that. And singing men, singing men. If you see particularly, ladies, listen, you do a great job. Okay, so let me just preach to the men for a second. Ladies, you, you're great singers. Men, we don't always love to sing. But a sign of something that God has done in your life is that you're willing to sing loud to Jesus. Willing to sing loud. If God has really done something in your life, he's given you something to sing about. And joyful hearts, grateful hearts, sing. Let your wife see you sing out of tune loud to Jesus. <laughs> Let your kids hear you wail to Jesus. Let them have that awful noise imprinted on their minds for all time. Because here's the thing, what else will make you sing like that? Right? Let your kids look at mom or dad and see you guys singing at the top of your lungs in such a way that they say, there's something special about King Jesus that mom or dad would sing that kind of way to him. God has to have done something in your life for you to be able to sing. And Paul says, that's the way you let the word of Christ really richly dwell in you. You sing. And notice that he says, he sings all kinds of songs, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. In other words, God is so great. There isn't just, listen, he's so great. One genre will not do. There's so much about God to celebrate that one kind of music is not enough to celebrate him with. I think that's why Paul just throws these layers, these terms out. Psalms, sing it. Hymns, sing it. Spiritual songs, sing it. You ought to sing uh, biblical songs. You ought to sing old songs. You ought to sing new songs. You ought to, listen, he is worthy of old hymns, amen? He is worthy of new songs. He, he is worthy of every kind of genre we can sing to him with. He's worthy of classical music. He's worthy of country gospel. He's worthy of Christian hip hop. Yes, he is. He's worthy of all kinds of, of, of music. He's so worthy that there are going to be future genres of music that will be invented just to praise him with. That's how worthy he is. And so we sing psalms, hymns, Spiritual songs. We sing songs like A Mighty Fortress Is Our God, written by Martin Luther 400 years ago. And we sing songs that were written last week because he's so magnificent and he's so multifaceted and he's so great that that one kind of song will not do. Amen? I, okay, let me just, can I camp here one more minute? You say, Pastor, I don't like the songs we sing. Or, you know, I, I, I wish we sang that other kind of song or this kind of song. Listen, think about the variety that we get to celebrate God with. Hymns that are theologically rich, 
But some songs that are so simple, a child can sing them and understand them. Aren't both of those things a gift? Because we need them both, actually. Uh, you think about the rich variety in the Bible uh, of music. I love the, the music of the Bible. I uh, think about like the Psalms uh, that are, you know, these are not like Jesus is my boyfriend type songs. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> think about, <laughs> thank you, thank you. Uh, think about like Psalm 2, a messianic psalm of the anointed Messiah who will shatter nations. That's a warrior song. Or Psalm 110 about our Lord who is sitting enthroned in heaven, ruling with an iron scepter until all of his enemies are made his footstool. That's, that's a fight song. That's one that I ought to be able to sing at the top of my lungs. Here's one of my favorites. It's, a, it's Judges 4 and 5. I know you're familiar with that. Uh, you, you, probably, you probably are familiar with this story. Judges 4 is this battle story. Israelites fighting some of their enemies, and you have this evil pagan king by the name of Sisera. And he's on the run, and there's an Israelite woman named J.L., who's one of the awesome characters in the Bible. J.L. says to Sisera, hey, come hide out in my tent. She makes him a meal, cooks some ribs, prepares some dessert, whatever. He eats, he gets sleepy, he falls asleep. She gets a tent peg and drives it through his skull and kills him. A friend of mine says, now that's the kind of biblical womanhood I can believe in. <laughs> awesome. She delivers Israel. But here, the story gets better. In the next chapter, another woman, Deborah, a prophetess, takes that story. She writes a song about it. And then all of the Israelites sing it. Can you imagine coming to worship on that Sunday morning? <laughs> you know, our enemies were so fierce. And then Jael took the tent peg, tent peg and she drove it through his skull. She drove it, she drove it, she drove it. <laughs> Hallelujah. And all God's people are singing. <laughs> now, here's what's really happening, folks. They're singing about a God who is victorious, who delivers his people. And can't we sing about that? So let the word of Christ dwell in you richly by teaching, by warning, and by singing. Oh my goodness, I'm out of time. <laughs> let me just give you the last couple things here. When the gospel's central, we prioritize the peace of Christ. We prioritize the word of Christ. We prioritize the name of Christ, the name of Christ. That's the third thing you see it in verse 17. Whatever you do, right? If you've really understood the beauty of the gospel and it's reshaped your life, then whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything, how? In the name of the Lord Jesus, in the ancient world, someone's name represented their character or their reputation. Even today, if you speak of someone having a good name in business, you're talking about their reputation. <clears throat> Paul is saying, if, if Jesus has changed your life, if he's become Lord, 
then it's reshaped your priorities in such a way that everything you do now is done in view of the reputation of Jesus. And this is all-encompassing. Notice the language, whatever you do. In word or deed, that pretty much covers it all, doesn't it? Do everything in the name of Jesus. In in Colossians chapter 1, we learn that Jesus is Lord over all things. Everything was made through him and for him. That means that there is nothing outside the scope of Jesus' lordship, which means that everything we do matters for him. Everything we do, we do in Christ's name and for Christ's glory. Amen? That's our priority. Everything we do is to represent Jesus and his reputation. Everything we do is to bring Jesus renown and fame and glory. That's our life's purpose. So let me just encourage you at the start of this year to make this your simple agenda for the new year. That I won't say or do anything that could not be said or done in the name of Jesus. And and everything I do and say, I will do for the sake of his name and for his glory. I will husband my wife for Jesus. I will parent my children for Jesus. I will work diligently at my job for Jesus. I will neighbor for Jesus. I will spend for Jesus. I will play for Jesus. If it can't be said or done in his name, I won't do it. And everything that I say or do, I'll do in his name and for his glory. Make it your simple prayer just to say, Jesus, use me, spend me, send me for your name's sake. Prioritize the name of Christ. And here's the fourth and final thing in the text. Verse 17, 16, and 15 all mention this, and I don't want you to miss it. Paul says, when the gospel is central, we will prioritize the peace of Christ, the word of Christ, the name of Christ, but but also we will prioritize gratitude for Christ. Look back at the text. Notice something in verses 15, 16, and 17. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ, to which you are also called in one body, rule your hearts. And what does it say there? And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And then again, third time in verse 17, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Say it with me. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. Paul says, if you've really understood the weightiness of the gospel and the beauty of the gospel, gratitude ought to be a marker in your life. That you ought to prioritize Gratitude for Christ, that your life will overflow with gratitude for Christ. I love the way Mary Moeller puts this. She says, you know, if you're walking along the road and you've got a a container full of water and somebody bumps you, it spills the water out because it's so full. She says, we ought to, our lives ought to be so full of God's love that when somebody jostles us, we spill gratitude. We're, We're so in love with God. We're so thankful to him that when somebody bumps up against us, that what comes out is gratitude. You say, what I have to be grateful for? Folks, the gospel itself. Jesus, 
what he's done for you. You may not have much to give thanks for this year, but if you know Jesus, you can give thanks for the gospel. This message of hope, this message of good news that, listen, as one person put it, there is nothing you can do to make God love you more. And there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. Isn't that good news? You could be thankful for that. This message that you are accepted by God, loved by God, approved by God, not on the basis of your performance, but on the basis of what Jesus has done. What a contrasting message with the heresy that Paul was addressing in Colossians. Church at Colossae was facing all kinds of worldviews that said you have to earn your way into a relationship with God. Through mysticism, through legalism, through moralism, right? Through mysticism, you have to have a mystical experience in order to have a relationship. Legalism, you have to follow the law in order to have a relationship. Moralism, you have to keep the rules in order to have a relationship. All three of those have something in common. It is action leading to acceptance. You perform, God will love you. The gospel is exactly the opposite. There is nothing you can do to make God love you more, nothing you can do to make God love you less. And it is not your action that leads you to acceptance, it's your acceptance in Christ that leads you to all the other actions. It's Christ's work for you that makes you accepted. And then you do all the other things, right? Those other philosophies and worldviews said that basically you start every day at the bottom rung of the ladder and through your action and effort, you have to climb the ladder to God. The gospel says there's nothing you could do to climb the ladder to God. So Christ put you up at the top rung. That's where you start every day. He puts you there and he keeps you there. And the good news of the gospel is that you are with Christ, loved by Christ, secure in Christ because of the work of Christ. And anything that we do, even like the daily formation challenge, which we've encouraged you to have a time every day this year in scripture and prayer, that is not to earn God's love. That's not like some moral effort that you do so God will be pleased with you or do you favors. It's just an opportunity to be intentional, to have a relationship with him, to get to know him better. But but for everything that we do begins with our acceptance in Christ and flows from that. Listen, We don't work for God's favor. We work from God's favor. And you can be grateful for that. Amen? Let's bow together. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe you're watching online or this is the first time you've ever been to a church and you're just kind of exploring what does it mean to be a Christian, let me just encourage you. God loves you. He wants a relationship with you. He wants you to have the peace of God in your life. You to be forgiven of your sin, reconciled to him, and made new. And if you've never made the decision to turn from your sin and put your trust in Christ and what he's done for you, I want to give you the opportunity to do that today. At the end of the service, after we sing, you can walk out in the lobby and there are going to be some folks there wearing badges, they're decision prayer partners. They would love to talk with you about what what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. So don't leave today until you go and talk with one of those individuals who can share with you the, the good news of a relationship with Christ. If you're here today 
and you know Jesus as Lord and Savior, let the gospel reshape your priorities. Let the peace of Christ and the word of Christ and the name of Christ and gratitude for Christ shape your priorities this year. Lord, we love you. We are thankful for all you have done for us. Lord, I pray that your peace would be known among us. Your word would dwell richly in us. That your name would be held high by us. That we would value the priority of gratitude. Lord, help those priorities be cemented into our life. Let it begin with me. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.